The Sydney Opera House acknowledges the Gadigal people, traditional custodians of Jubagali, the land on which the Opera House stands. We honour the long Gadigal history of gathering and storytelling and acknowledge the strength and resilience of First Nations people and communities past and present. Welcome to Ideas at the House, a podcast featuring talks and ideas from the Sydney Opera House. The demonisation of single women is nothing new. From the European witch trials to the formation of the Western legal system and its impact on survivors today, the economic threat posed by spinsters in the 17th century is echoed by the contemporary terror of cat ladies. In this invigorating All About Women 2023 session, Clementine Ford's eye-opening and hilarious walk through history explored why unmarried spinsters strike fear in the heart of powerful men. This talk was recorded live at the Sydney Opera House in March 2023. Um, My name is Clementine Ford and thank you. Thank you all for being here. I just, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are on the land of the Gadigal people. I pay my respects to elders past and present. And I'd also like to put a little disclaimer that this is a talk that tries to condense a thousand years of Western patriarchal history into an hour. Um, So there are some things that it's going to miss, and I am not the perfect person to speak about the impact of colonisation on Aboriginal women in particular in this country, but this is a whole other story that goes alongside this and that is enforced by this. So on that note, I'm not going to go into the history there, but I would urge you, please, to go out and follow Aboriginal women and people who are doing incredible work in our community and their communities. I did a panel earlier with Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, who is simply amazing, is doing amazing things to advocate for the rights of children, and there's one particular case that she's working on at the moment, where she has raised, in community, $60,000 to help assist a woman, a First Nations woman, who's had her child stolen from her by using the Hague Convention and taken to Europe by an abuser, you can find out more about that case by looking at Vanessa's page and in the context of talking about spinsters and babies being put in our bellies, we also need to think about all of the people who've had their children taken from them over thousands of years, who've been oppressed by the society and structures that we live in and sometimes enforce. And please don't let this be the end of the conversation for you. I'd also like to say that if you're looking at a thousand years of Western patriarchal history, there's going to be some pretty bad shit in that. Uh, I've tried to make it funny because we have to laugh at ourselves, right? That's what the boys taught me. (laughs) But I would like to say that there is also a content note for discussion of essentially everything that you can think of might have come up in the last thousand years of patriarchy. If you do need to leave the room, please don't feel at all frightened of doing so. Uh, That said, welcome to Spinster. Thank you so much for being here. I'd like to thank the organisers here at the Opera House because once again they've given me a very long leash and essentially allowed me to tell them what I'm doing. Last year it was a sermon on love, which a bit weird for a notorious (laughs) man-hater. But you'd be surprised by how many women you can get to leave their husbands when you show them what love actually looks like. This year, obviously, we're looking at the history of spinsters and why men in particular seem so obsessed 
with our happiness. Because it's our happiness, of course, that we're told we are denying ourselves by remaining single and childless and old. Who's going to look after us in the nursing home? Well, it's not going to be your husband. He'll be dead. He'll have held his hand. Just before we start, who here in the room is single or, as I like to call it, happy? Yeah, great. Excellent. Now, if you didn't put your hand up, and you're married or partnered, then it's okay. <laughs> There's still time, all right? It's not over for you yet. There's still, you're still, you, you know, I know it gets lonely sometimes, but it's a long life ahead of you, all right? I would never want you to feel bad about being married. No, I'm just joking. I'm not, it's not actually really about whether or not you're married or not, although you shouldn't be. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's more about the structural system that we live under that tells us that we have to be. Um, I personally don't think that there's much different in a sermon about spinsters and not being married as there is in a love sermon because it's, I'm just telling you, don't get the husband in the first place. You know, cut out the middleman. <laughs> cut him up, maybe. <laughs> no, I'm not saying... I'm not saying dismember the men in your lives. No. Nah, that's too messy. Too messy. There's a lot of blood involved in that. And you know who's going to have to clean that up? <laughs> Not him. Oh, I'll do it later. <laughs> Just as much chance of getting a dead man to clean the house, by the way. No, no, no. No, what you want is good poison. Something undetectable, untraceable, something odourless, tasteless, packaged in a neat cosmetic bottle so that people think it's frivolous women's stuff. Like Julia Tofana in 17th century Rome, a single mother and businesswoman whose wildly popular face cream, Aqua Tofana, carried just three ingredients designed to make a woman's life much happier. Belladonna, lead and arsenic. <laughs> Working alongside a small team of trusted friends, and so the story goes, a Catholic priest who sourced the poison for them, not all men. <laughs> Julia became the port of call for fellow country women trapped in abusive, unhappy marriages, which honestly was probably close to all of them because 17th century Italy wasn't exactly a feminist utopia, you know, not like today. <laughs> Most of the Western world at the time women were considered property. They were considered property of men under the law, the law of coverture, which we're going to talk about a little bit more later. The ownership of their identities literally transferred from their fathers to their husbands. They weren't allowed to own anything. If you wanted to have any kind of social mobility at all, you basically had to resign yourself to the necessity of getting married and then just hope you became a widow sooner rather than later. <laughs> it's a beautiful tradition. Enter Julia Tofana and her concealed poison. Over the course of four or five days, Julia's clients would administer a few drops of the Aqua Tofana to their husband's meals and then watch as their conditions rapidly deteriorated. Within a week, the source of the women's distress would have disappeared. It was a truly magical tonic. But the genius of the solution was in how completely undetectable Aqua Tofana was. If there were any doubts as to a woman's involvement in her husband's murder, an autopsy would be unable to find proof of foul play, leaving her not just free of all charges and prone to inherit, but also silencing anyone who dared to implicate her. And it's estimated that in her time, Julia Tofano helped to liberate around 600 women from such situations over the course of 20 years with a skill that she'd learned from her mother, who was also a widow. 
and one that she passed on to her daughter, who kept it up after she was gone. There's a clear lesson here. If you want something done right, pay a single mother to do it. Okay, now, just in case there's any Daily Mail journalists lurking in the audience, I have to stress that this is a joke. Look it up. Women can be funny. Sometimes, though, I amuse myself of, in thinking about headlines that the Daily Mail would write about me. They, have, they write a lot, you know. They always choose the best photos, though. With this, it'll be controversial feminist tells women to poison husbands. Hardline feminist praises Italian serial killer. Far left, left feminist shocks audience with graphic description of dismembering men. Cut him up, she says. Obviously, though, the Daily Mail knows that the stuff they write is absolute bollocks. But that's not the point. The point is always and has always been to mobilise the frothing fury of the chronically ignorant, whether it's the church stirring up mistrust of witches to solidify its power, or Sky News shining a light on feminist totalitarianism. The truth is irrelevant. What they want is to ensure continued engagement from the kinds of people who unironically say that white men are the most oppressed people in society, and who think that women disagreeing with them is a hate crime. Your average modern conservative... Fuckwits, I call them. Hi, Dad. <laughs> Would have everyone believe that, mo- that mouthy women are a new invention. That for most of human history, women happily did what we were told. Understanding ourselves to be weak and inferior. Sorry, different. To men and grateful to be held under the shield of their protection. And then feminism was created. Apparently by the Rockefeller Foundation. <laughs> I just wish people would read books before speaking. (laughs) And feminism, as we know, ruined women. Before feminism, women were content being mothers and wives. Our joy came from taking care of our families and knowing our place in the world. We were pretty, which the feminists hated, obviously. And we knew, we knew what our purpose was. But the feminists, see, they were jealous. They were jealous of all those pretty, young, really pretty young things who were getting married and finding their bliss in home, making, cooking and cleaning and singing their way through the day, having so much fun. And the feminists, who were also old and so ugly, they just couldn't stand it. So they infiltrated the homes of the beautiful young women, pretending to be on their side, and then boom, they tricked them into eating a poisonous apple. And wait, that's the plot of Snow White. And basically every other Disney interpretation of folk tales. You know, Snow White, Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty came out in 1937, 1950 and 1959 respectively, a time in which the backlash against the feminist gains of the suffragettes was still in full swing and what Betty Friedan called the mystique of feminine fulfilment was the cherished and self-perpetuating core of American culture. Weird that a huge part of culture involves selling fairy tales of marrying princes to little girls who were also learning that the villains of the piece, the old, evil, ugly women who were jealous of their youth and beauty could only be defeated by the man who would bestow true love's kiss on them and whisk them away to a castle to live happily ever after. But I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Disruptive women have been punished for our disobedience since the dawn of time, and the same range of tactics have been employed over and over to either suffocate our spirits or at least warn other women watching of the consequences of this behaviour. Now, just by giving me a show of hands, who here has ever had one of the following things yelled at them, said to them, or just typed at them by a man who said something, who did not like the thing that you said? Ugly. Cunt. 
ugly cunt. You need a good dick up ya. Clearly not getting anyone. They're clearly not getting any of that one. You look old. Slut. Whore. You've got to run through pussy. No men want to fuck you. You're just saying that because no one wants you. You're going to die alone. You're a dumb bitch. Why do you hate men? Who's avoided disagreeing with a man or tempered their words because you're afraid of having those extremely rational, extremely logical and not at all pathologically deranged things <laughs> screamed at you? Don't be shy. It's something we learn to do from a very young age as an act of preservation. And because we've become timid in the face of men's overbearing hostility, men have allowed themselves to believe that it's because we're weak, stupid, incapable of debate, which is my favourite. And those are just the basics. Don't forget that women and non-binary people with intersecting identities are subject to even worse. Racialised misogyny, trans misogyny, ableist misogyny. There is no way to be a woman in this world that doesn't involve steeling yourself against some kind of pain and violence. And a lot of women have to field it from multiple sides. The writer and philosopher Kate Mann compares the use of misogyny to shock collars worn by dogs to train them to stay behind invisible fences. She argues that even the threat of it can often be enough to discourage girls and women from venturing out of bounds. If we're all strapped into an invisible shock collar the moment a doctor declares rightly or wrongly us to be a girl, then of course it impacts how we learn to behave. That's what the shock collar is there for. And if you want to talk about logic, there's nothing more logical than doing whatever you can to avoid the abuse that you learn to associate with trying to remove the thing that keeps you in line. Now that women have some semblance of choice when it comes to marriage and domestic partnership, patriarchal society has switched up its tactics for making us run towards it by training us to believe that being chosen for service by a man is the greatest thing that could ever happen to a girl. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was the invention of clitoral air pulse technology, but <laughs> everyone's different. The current message on single women proclaimed loudly across every platform you can find is that women are basically too daffy and stupid to know how to exist in the world without men's authoritative control. We can only be considered humans if a man validates us with his dick stamp. Also, we're selfish. Because who the fuck do we think we are sitting there in our peaceful, quiet apartments that men built, by the way... <laughs> we don't know every single good thing that has ever happened in the world to the brave, brilliant and totally unappreciated heroes who are responsible for literally creating every single thing that's ever existed. We think we can just be single by choice when men are out there collecting our garbage every day, when they're responsible for our plumbing, for the electricity that keeps our TVs running, which they also designed and built every single last one of them. Don't you know that men built all the roads? <laughs> everything. Men built everything. They did it all laboring day after day to create a beautiful, seamless world for you lot, you bloody ungrateful harpies. It's not just the buildings and the plumbing and the electricity and the roads. They also created cities built tanks, cars, computers, all the satellites, the rockets, the boats, the seat you're sitting in, this podium, the opera house, they fought the wars, they built the governments, they did the science, they did all the rapes. <laughs> no, no, not that one. That was a mistake. They didn't do that. In fact, no, that wasn't them. That wasn't them. They didn't do the rapes. They didn't do the violence. No, that's, that was the other 
That was the other ones. The ones they're protecting us from. Small percentage, tiny fraction. They don't know any of them. They don't know any of them. That was just a small, minuscule amount, really. You can bloody forget... Bloody man-hater, you can forget that one. That wasn't them. (laughs) If anything, they bloody protect us from it, which is the other thing they do, all the protecting. Everything else, all the good stuff, they did it all. Every last bit of it. And what do they get as thanks? A bunch of self-centred bitches who don't realise there's no amount of money, autonomous living and or blissfully quiet Saturday mornings that could ever make up for the fact that you'll die old, sad and alone. When will we realise, all of us, that being too picky will only hurt you in the end? Your career won't be there to hold all of you decomposing hags at night. not going to visit you in the care home you're destined to end up in the stretched out emptiness of your days a cruel imitation of the beaten out vagina you took on tour when you were young and the cavernous vault that lies at the end of it that you call a womb our refusal to embrace the roles of wife and mother when we're young enough to still be attractive to men lucky us will be our greatest regret It's hard to imagine regretting anything more than the time I got drunk and trimmed my own fringe with nail scissors, but (laughs) what would I know? I am but a woman, and as such, I need to have men explain the circumstances of my life to me. And boy, do men love to tell women what we want and need in order to be happy. The feminist philosopher Marilyn Fry discusses this in her incredible essay, To Be and Be Seen. Written in the 1970s, but still crushingly relevant today, Fry says that men retain their right to be authors of perception and therefore the constructors of reality. She asks the reader to imagine a statue. On one side of the statue stands a man. That's me. (laughs) And on the other side stands a woman. Sorry, I've got to get lower because I'm um, below men. (laughs) The man and the woman describe what they see of the statue to each other. And the man is astonished when he hears the woman describe something completely different. That the statue might have multiple perspectives for the viewer, depending on which angle you look at it from, doesn't occur to the man. He has described what he sees in the statue, which means he's described all that the statue is, all that the statue, in fact, is able to show. The woman, he concludes, must be looking at the statue wrong. How many times have you been told by a man that your perspective is incorrect? Perhaps you've come home and described a conversation that you've had with someone at work, something that's left you feel uncomfortable or in a rage or just a bit confused by someone's behaviour. And you describe the situation to whichever man happens to, unfortunately, be in your home at the time, (laughs) only to have them question your interpretation of events. Are you sure you heard it right? I'm sure he didn't mean that. That doesn't sound like something Brad would do. At best, these interactions form a low-level buzz in our brains, a series of daily microaggressions that serve to chip away at the confidence that we have in our own perception until we're eventually unable to trust what we see or rely on what we know to be true. And at worst, they constitute an assault on our consciousness, causing us to ignore our gut instincts and derail our own ability to protect ourselves against danger. When wielded by those who wish us harm, which includes forcing us to accept things that other people do instead of not causing consequences for them. He's got a whole career ahead of him, you know. Think about his future. (laughs) This undermining of our ability to perceive is weaponized. How can you be sure you didn't say yes? Did you kiss him? Were you flirting with him? Are you sure you didn't want it? 
This persistent querying of women's capacity to construct reality has been one of patriarchy's most calculated attacks against us. For time immemorial, men have gathered in groups, large and small, to not only author a general perception of the world that positions them as its natural, more capable leaders, but to also continually affirm to each other their agreement that women, being feeble-minded, illogical and unable to perceive in the same way as men, must not be able to perceive at all. Our perception must therefore be crafted for us by men who are more than happy to tell us what is real and what is not, and who never, ever need to ask us what we think. In men's construction of reality, women's aversion to the marriage state has nothing to do with our own desires or aspirations, or even just the fact it has become physically impossible to lower our standards any more than we have. It's because we're too ugly, crazy, old, or just plain unfuckable to be considered suitable for it in the first place. And so any complaints we make have to be understood in that context. It's not a modern phenomenon. Men may have the internet now, but some variation of the sandwich joke has been circulating since the beginning of time. A pamphlet published anonymously in 1713 called A Satyr Upon Old Maids described never-married women in such glowing terms as a pestilence and nasty, rank, rammy, filthy sluts. (laughs) We can continue to marvel at the extraordinary ability women have to be both buttoned-up prudes and filthy fuck-trucks. Both of these states treated as interchangeable by men whose true grievance lies not in how we use our bodies, but how we use our brains. But the excuses don't change either. Despite an almost 400-year gap, men frothing across social media today tout the same arguments their forefathers were using written pamphlets and crudely drawn comics to chide women with. To wit, that the population is declining. And the human race will die out unless women surrender all this nonsense and embrace the natural biological purpose, which was conveniently manufactured by 18th century scientists for the purposes of rallying women to breed that we were designed for. One might think that if the state needs babies, some of whom will, of course, grow up to be men who build roads, (laughs) then the people charged with doing that work might be paid for it. But this is the inconvenient double bind that patriarchy finds itself in. If we admit that society needs women to do this work, then recognising its inherent value might mean putting an economic price on it. And this in turn provides women with both an income and enterprise bargaining power. (laughs) Financially independent women are harder to control, which causes a bit of a headache for men who've historically been able to exchange basic economic security for an endless supply of domestic sexual and reproductive labour. If patriarchal society can't function without women bearing the brunt of this work, and convincing us of its necessity to our lives is an industry in and of itself. And so single women of relative means become witches, spinsters, old maids and cat ladies. We are turned into a source of derision and spite, each sneery accusation designed to send a little zap through the invisible collars that were strapped around our necks the moment a probably male obstetrician looked down and declared us to be a girl. By relentlessly and viciously mocking single women, most of whom are just minding our own business, to be honest, a message is sent to all women. Don't even fucking try to resist your obligation to service male authority, or we will use every tool at our disposal to turn you into a figure of ridicule and an acceptor of our violence. This is where we see how man's shock collar has been employed as a training mechanism to keep us behind those invisible fences. Nothing works quite so immediately as the use of insults and mockery, and Marilyn Fry calls these the the banishment from culture of those with perceptual and semantic authority, which is a fancy way of saying that if you say things men don't like, they will summarily render you obsolete. 
Men will cast disruptive women out of reality if she refuses to maintain the patriarchal illusion of it. Misogyny has ejaculated all manner of words and phrases over the centuries designed to destroy our humanity and reduce us instead to pitiful creatures living hideously unfulfilling lives down in our sad little garbage piles by the swamp. (laughs) Shrew, scold, harridan, nag, bitch, whore, slut, cunt. If you're looking to quickly discredit a woman, there's a range of poison to choose from. This is an old, old story. It would be impossible to tell it in all its entirety, but I'm going to give you a snapshot glimpse of the last thousand years today. So let's go on a witch hunt. (laughs) This, before we begin, is an original spinner. And they weren't called spinsters in the beginning, they were called spinners. And it was a job that really kind of got a title around the 13th century. It wasn't used as a pejorative against women then because they didn't really care whether or not women were married because women just got forced into marriage back then. It wasn't a choice that women had. So a spinner was called a spinner because she was, or a spinner rather, became a spinner because she was unmarried because it was so cheap to get a spinning wheel. That's a, what a cool woman. (laughs) You may have seen this tweet circulating, just learnt that spinster was originally the word for a woman so good at weaving that she was financially independent. How interesting. Sounds good, not true. Spinners weren't really financially independent. They were poor. They were the poorest of the poor. And as I said, they went into spinning because they lacked the ability to be married. And marriage would have sucked in in the Middle Ages. Like, there were no baths. So... (laughs) But to not be married might have sucked even more. Because you had no uh, no social mobility, no economic mobility, no broader kinship group to surround yourselves in. So now we're going on the witch hunt. This is the Malleus Maleficarum. It was published in 1486, otherwise known as the Hammer of Witches. And for around 300 years, it was considered second only to the Bible in Western culture. It was a definitive guide to witch hunting, which of course is a very real thing. Uh, The hunting's real, but the witches obviously are real too, because, um, hang on, let me just get my notes. Oh, this is, this is the problem when you've got, like, a million pieces of paper. Uh, right, okay. Oh, where did I put them? Talk amongst yourselves. No, don't really do that. <laughs> They're probably at the back here somewhere. Oh, my goodness me. Here they are. Right. <clears throat> this is the Malleus Maleficarum. It was published in 1486 otherwise known as the Hammer of Witches, and for 300 years it was considered the second most important text to the Bible. It sat on the desks of every judge in every county across England and probably across Europe, or across Europe and probably across England, and it was filled with such treats as women are more credulous, more impressionable, more carnal than a man with slippery tongues and weak memories. And of course, this capacity of women to lie was was what accounted for us being mostly witches, which is to say that most of the people who they thought were witches were naturally women. And in fact, it was so assumed and accepted that women were just more likely to be the witches that most authors stopped explaining it. The Malleus, though, did go into it in great detail. And our duplicity, of course, was caused by Eve, who had been formed from Adam's bent rib. And because the rib was bent, it bent away in contradiction from man. And it made us more likely to fall into the service of Satan. A hundred years after the Malleus was published, King James of Scotland published his book, Demonology, in which he asserted that women were 20 times more likely to be witches. And Scotland, Scotland, of course, had one of the most brutal 
wings of the witch hunts, killed some of the highest numbers of women in the most brutal of ways. Women, of course, were subservient to Satan in this whole model, which is interesting because when Satan was first created by man, he was a sort of devilish imp. But when they put women in the service of Satan, they made him their master. Because women have to be subservient to someone, right? Silvia Federici, in her book Caliban and the Witch, calls this a prefiguration of women's matrimonial destiny. What was aided in the witch hunts? By the way, it's just Satan taking some of his... Taking some of his booze out for a ball. He's having a bit of a dance. Uh, yeah, that's just Satan tempting villagers. One man, but lots of women, because they're sluts. Uh, oh, look, there's some women eating something, probably like just blood and stuff. She's riding, she's flying a goat. So, typical Saturday night. The hunting of the witches was helped by the fight that was occurring at the time between the Catholic Church and the newly established Protestant Church. So Martin Luther had left the Catholic Church, started the Protestant wing, and both wings of the church were like, but which were both run by men, obviously. They were like, you know what will really convince people to join us and give us all their money is if we kill the most witches. So we need to establish ourselves as the best at witch killing. And it just became a fight between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church and over 40,000, mostly women, in the course of 150 years. I mean, of course, witch paranoia lasted a lot longer than that, but 150 years of brutal killings, over 40,000 of people, mostly women, were executed. This is uh, women handing babies to Satan. God, sometimes I feel like doing that. Take him! No, that's not true. He's, he's big now, so he's a lot easier to deal with. Um, the Malleus says that midwives were the worst of all women. And interestingly, in the witch hunts, they targeted mostly women over 40 and mostly women who were the wise women, who carried the knowledge of medicine, who carried the knowledge of reproduction, who were there at the births of the babies. And the church was like, hang on. We don't like those women having control over this shit. It was was messy business before, but now we feel like maybe we should have control over it because that makes us feel more godlike. So we're going to wrestle that away from the women. We're going to kill all of them first, obviously, as witches. But then we're going to make obstetrics a male-dominated field. Have any of you ever wondered why so much of obstetrics... I can't even say the word. They designed it for me not to say. (laughs) So much of obstetrics is run by men. Yeah, uh, because they stole it from us and killed us all. Um, this is my favourite. The witches would uh, steal men's penises. Get a little close-up of that. Just... That, was, that was in the Malleus. They were like, one of the things that these witches do is they steal men's penises. And, and, I, and I know, because a man came and said, oh, she, stole my, she stole my dick. I mean, you can just imagine how that happened. He's gone to bed with someone, and she's like, oh, God, is that it? And he's like, oh, I was bigger before. Someone stole it. It must have been the witch. Um, which, by the way, as I've said before, I am not about dick-shaming jokes, like big, small, whatever, I don't care. But they care about it. So as long as they care about it, I'm going to go low. <laughs> It's 
that's one of my favourite pictures. Look, she's just she's had a good harvest that year. She's she's put some magic fertiliser on that penis tree. I mean, that's only got to have been drawn by a man, hasn't it? Just whoop. she's got a few in her basket. She's a nice fricassee. Right, what have we got here? Oh, look, Satan's taken some people out on this brooms. She's like, no, but really she wants to go. Get in, we're going penis shopping. <laughs> so that was the witches. And um, how do we get from the witches to the spinsters? Because it's all connected. It's all connected. So that's where we meet this chap. Looks like a nice cuddly guy, doesn't he, right? <laughs> Wrong. That's Matthew Hale, Lord Matthew Hale, the Lord, they call him in law schools. Uh, Lord Matthew Hale was a legal scholar. He wrote a book called The Historia Placitorum Coronae. He existed in the 17th century, in the 1600s. And he basically, he was a Lord Chief Justice of the Court of the King's Bench. Um, probably got there on merit, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> He travelled around and he collected all of the common laws of England so that he could put them in this book, so that he could be like, this is the law. And it essentially created the Western judiciary system as we know it. Matthew Hale killed three women as witches. He presided over three, two trials in which three women were sentenced to death. He really believed in witches. He, even long after, they were like, oh, this witch stuff might... It's a bit weird, isn't it? He was like, no, it's definitely true. It's definitely true. But that's kind of his deal, you know? Like, he just decided things were real because we've also got Matthew Hale to thank for the fact that for 300 years, marital rape was not something that could be prosecuted because in his collection of common laws, he wrote that marital rape could not possibly happen. He said... The mutual matrimonial consent and contract is assured by the marriage, essentially. Now, that wasn't actually in the common laws of England. He might have seen it being observed, but he just decided that that sounded good to him. So he put it in the law, and it was only in the 1970s that that law began to be repealed here in this country. 300 years. That man... (laughs) That's an accurate picture of him, by the way. I found that. That's a real... That's exactly what he looked like. But he also said this, and we're going to get into some tricky rape territory here, because he's also responsible for all of the judiciary fuckery that has it so difficult for victims and survivors to be believed, that had until the 1980s in the United States, juries being told before they retired to deliberate, to think about whether or not she fought back, to think about what her reputation was like, how long did it take her to report Matthew Hale, who called rape a detestable crime because you'll never find someone more opposed to rape than the rape apologist. The real rape, they'll call it. He said, rape is an accusation easily to be made and hard to be proved and harder to be defended by the party accused, though never so innocent. Basically, bitches lie. (laughs) This is Samuel Alito. What does he have to do with Matthew Hale? Samuel Alito is a Supreme Court judge in the United States. And he quoted Matthew Hale in his majority opinion that was used to overturn Roe versus Wade last year. He said that Hale was an eminent common law authority and referred to his view on abortion, which Hale called a great crime and misdeed, not 
not even in the Book of Common Law, but in a letter to his grandchildren, in which he also advised his three granddaughters to not be too spirited and to only read scripture. And that was used to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that is the reason why everyone who can become pregnant in America today no longer is safe. Because this man decided that a fucking piece of shit from 350 years ago who's been dead that long has more authority over our bodies than we do. I'm steamed. (laughs) That was the letter. 206 pages long. God, they do go on, don't they? All right, let's move forward. I'm going to run out of time, but we might just have to go over. We're going to go through some spinster propaganda because in the 17th and 18th centuries, it was the establishment of the middle class across Europe and across England. And women, although they didn't have any power, they wouldn't get the Married Women's Property Right Act passed until 1848. So they still couldn't own property. And they were still governed by coverture, which I mentioned before, which was the law that dictated on the books that they had their identities, that their identities belonged to their fathers or their husbands, that they just didn't belong to themselves. So all of these women who responded to the establishment of the middle class and saw, oh, there's some business opportunities here, they started to make their own money. Not a lot of it, but enough for them to be like, I don't think I will get married, actually, because that looks shit. (laughs) And they didn't want to get married because the money that they had would then go to someone else. They would have no control over it. So they were like, ah, it's not for me. This contradicted what society had been telling itself about women for hundreds of years, which was that we were debased in nature. We were sexually depraved. We were in the service of Satan or could be called to it so easily. And that that's why we needed to be married so that men could contain this carnal lust in us. But because these middle-class, yes, spinsters, as they started to be called, which my theory is that it's a class It's a class insult. Oh, well, you've got money, but you're nothing more than a poor woman with a spinning wheel. These women defied that because they were not... I mean, some of them may have been having a lot of secret sex. Cool, good for them. But they weren't living in a way that made it seem like they were carnally driven. And so they were like, oh, shit, maybe maybe people aren't going to believe for much longer that women have this debased sexual energy that needs to be contained by men. So they flipped the story and they said, actually, women don't know about sex at all. Good women don't know anything about sex. They've, they've been, they, they're good women. That's why they need to be married so that men can help protect them and also help them become mothers, which will be their duty and their calling. And these cartoons, memes, really, they were the old maid. Look, the lady have... I can't read that. It's too small. I'm 41. <laughs> cat. She's got a cat. Oh, look at that. Oh, God, she's so gnarled and old, a cat. <laughs> this one's good. This was uh, this is referenced in two of Shakespeare's plays. Much Ado About Nothing is the first one. Nothing, by the way, in uh, 17th century England, nothing was a euphemism for vaginas. So Much Ado About Nothing, the play title, is literally they just made a lot of fuss about pussy, basically. Um, It's also referenced in The Taming of the Shrew, which is a great feminist play, if you (laughs) haven't seen it. 
This was old maids leading apes, which was a very common mockery at the time, which essentially said that if you failed in your duty as a woman to um, marry and de-virginify yourself in their, deflower yourself in their terminology and have a child, that you would be remiss in your duty as a holy person on earth and your punishment would be to go to hell where you would be led by apes for eternity. I am certain that there is some crossover horrible racism going on with this as well because it's the same time that science was getting really into eugenics. But essentially what they're saying is that this... Oh, look, she's just so old. It's so so sad, isn't it? (laughs) That old maids would be destined to be fucked by apes for an eternity in hell if they didn't get married. Maybe we get off lightly with the cat ladies thing. I'm not sure. (laughs) Women are stupid. I've captioned these. This is my, like, the headline slide. It's tiny. Um, (laughs) Like our brains. Oh, God. So, around the 18th and 19th centuries, men decided that science was really cool. Before that, they were like, science is for crackpots, and we don't want to have any part of it, because we're godly men, and if you study the stars, we'll kill you. (laughs) But then they were like, actually, there might be something in this, and let's study brains. And so they decided that they would use science, which they shut off to women, obviously, women couldn't go to university. (laughs) Stupid suggestion. And they decided they were going to measure skulls. (laughs) They put all of this time and effort into... Men are the builders, obviously. They put all of this time and effort into building contraptions that would measure skulls. There's so many of them. And all of this was in aid of proving, A, that women were inferior to men, and B, that people who were not of European uh, Anglo background were also inferior. So it was racist and sexist. A lot of time and money, obviously, went into this, measuring the brains. Um, This one was... There was a practice called orthognathism and prognathism. This is one of the theories. And scientists, just like all white scientists, they were trying to prove, actually, that white people were superior to people of colour. And so they were like, we're going to study the angles, and this angle happens to be the angle that most of us white guys have, so it's the best one. And that one is the one that people we don't like have, so that's the worst one. So that's the, we've proved it. We've proved it. <laughs> But a woman named Alice Lee, who we can't celebrate too much because she was also a eugenicist, so... But I'm going to tell you the story without... We're not celebrating her. But she came along and she was like, well, I've done some studies and I've measured a bunch of people and actually women have uh, a better rating than you do on this basis. And also children do too. And so scientists were like, oh, fuck. Um, (laughs) Right, confab time. Okay, what this means is that women are like children and men are still superior to them. Thank you, thank you. (laughs) So, solved, done. And Alice Lee finally got them off the trail because she was like, I've measured some of your brains and some of you are dumber than each other. (laughs) And they were like, you know what? (sighs) We don't think craniology and phrenology... We don't really think that that's... We don't really think that that's... No, that's not true anymore. Uh, So (laughs) this is... Phrenology kind of decided that, like, parts of the brain based on lumps and bumps and stuff like that. So men's benevolence was stored up here. (laughs) It's what made a man suited for domestic life. Benevolent. What made a woman unsuited for domestic life? Oh, hope. (laughs) Self-esteem. 
firmness, <laughs> intellect. Oh, gosh. Pretty dire. Um, yeah, that's basically how they ran their experiments. <laughs> Just did it like that. Catherine Kennard at one point, she was really into science. She was not, as far as I can tell, a eugenicist. She wrote to Charles Darwin, the father of evolution. Charles Darwin, celebrated man in history. And she said, I heard that you said that women are inferior to men. That doesn't sound right to me. And he wrote back and he was like, well, actually, they are. Um, it makes sense, obviously, because women are dumb. And some women, I grant you, are smart, but that's an inherited trait from their father. <laughs> so there's only one area in which women are more superior than men, and that's morally. But only when it comes to domestics. So more outside of the house, men have a better moral grounding than women. But inside the house, women are more moral, which is a great thing to do to us because not only does it say that we can only be superior when we're inside our home, but we're also responsible for keeping men on the straight and narrow. Um, Charles Darwin. <laughs> this is Coventry Patmore, who wrote a very popular poem in the 19th century called The Angel in the House. It was dedicated to his wife, Emily. Oh, God, she's much younger than him, isn't she? He's going to die earlier, though, so good luck to her. And he celebrated, basically, just all of the kind of pedestal things that you can imagine a man saying. She's so wonderful. Oh, what do you like about her Coventry? Oh, I just love how she takes care of her family. I just love how she looks after me. She's so beautiful. That was the angel in the house. I'm not going to read it for you. You can Google it yourselves later. Virginia Woolf did say in 1931 that she considered it the occupation of the woman writer to kill the angel in the house. <laughs> because it coincided as well at the same time as a scientific discovery that having the scientists having decided, well, actually, like, craniology and phrenology is a bit hard to prove, and also sometimes we can get stung by it. We don't like that. Why don't we come up with a theory that's completely unproven, unprovable, in fact, but that sounds really good? And that is that men and women, it's not that one is superior to, another, to the other, although men are. It's that women are different. And women are different because they have children, and obviously very cis-centric language. Women are different because they have children, and that means that they're naturally the nurturers. That means that they need to have children in order to have any kind of happiness. And in fact... We want them to have children, and we don't want them to get involved in all of this rumblings of women getting the vote that we keep hearing about and women wanting more rights. Don't like that. We don't like that. So what we're going to do is we'll tell them that if they get too much education, it could literally make them infertile. <laughs> that is Edward H. Clarke, and he wrote a book called Sex in Education or A Fair Chance for Our Girls. It's the title that could have been written today. And he said that education was the culprit for female sterility by manufacturing women with monstrous brains and puny bodies. <laughs> the reproductive machinery to be well-made must be carefully managed. Force must be allowed to flow thither in an ample stream. Oh, it makes it sound like being pissed on, which it kind of is, and not diverted to the brain by the school. So then we're going to get to the suffragettes. I'm racing through. I've got eight minutes left, but I'm just telling you right now I'm going ten minutes over. Sorry. We've got some militant suffragette propaganda here. Oh, again, they're so old, aren't they? So old and ugly. Bless father, mother, brother, Bill, Jane, and sister Liz. But bless, oh, bless beyond them all, the man. 
man who'll call me his. Donald McGill. St. Valentine greets you and hopes you will soon get off. Oh, she's a suffragette. We're going to blow her up. Don't become a cross old maid. You can't get anyone to marry you. Try to live like other women. Don't show your disappointment, cat. <laughs> Girls are doing all the fellows' jobs now. <laughs> Lesbians. They didn't like them either. more cats coming up. Cats, by the way, again, this goes back to the witches. Cats were thought to be the figure that Satan took on. They were the familiars of witches. There's a whole story about beer that I just did not have time to get into, but buy my book in October. You'll be able to read it. This is a drawing called Old Maids at a Cat's Funeral, so it combines two of my favourite things. Aren't they silly old duffers going to a cat's funeral? They used, in anti-suffragette propaganda, they liked to use cats because cats were associated with sad old ladies. So they liked to use cats to further ridicule and diminish women who were just out there. And listen, I'm not going to get glassy-eyed about the suffragettes. There was a lot of eugenicism amongst the suffragettes. There was a lot of racism. It's important that we share that history too. They were not all great. I don't have anything funny to say about that. It's just not, it's not funny. <laughs> But this was a tactic that was used against the, the suffragettes. Votes for women. I'm a caddy suffragette. I scratch and fight the police. So long as they withhold the vote, my warfare will not cease. Votes for women. Vote for she's the suffragette down with the tomcats. Elliot. I want my vote. We demand the vote. Oh, they're just so ridiculous, aren't they? Now down with the men and up with the women, a procession of suffragettes. Oh, they're so old, they're so old. <laughs> Home for lost, stolen or strayed suffragettes. No, men admitted, get out. Sounds great. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> oh, look at her, she's taller than him too. The man, don't you wish you were a man, Mrs. Spankhurst, the suffragette. Yes, don't you wish you were? It's pretty good, it's pretty good. <laughs> Oh, what I would do with the suffragettes. Oh, you know, you know what I really love when men today say, you're not like the real feminists. They'd be rolling in their graves. I support the real feminists, the real feminists. Would you? Did you? Would you? Because your forefathers didn't. This is what I would do with the suffragettes. Oh, it's so funny. Oh, peace at last. Look at that. There's a lot of racial iconography in this as well because these torture methods obviously were also used against enslaved people. So they're fantasizing about torture. Mm. Look at that. Peace at last. Peace on earth. Finally, peace on earth. Peace on earth. I mean, apart from anything, it's just not very original. Oh, Andrew Tate, grip her by the neck. That's opinion on, Tate's opinion on how to handle a girl. I wonder what this person has to say about that. Is, that, is a man who shared that going to condemn it? No, Tate's way of shutting up girls, laughing face emoji. What is your way? Oh, if you've got a wife that nags, get one of these patent gags. Look, they just loved to fantasize about hurting them, didn't they? Cut off their tongues. Which, of course, was great because it uh, drew on the torture methods they used against the witches. Scolds, bridle. They would strap women into it to stop them from talking. This was one for quarrelling women. They'd strap them into it and force them to walk around for hours. 
It's a witch. They used a dunking method where they would keep dunking her for hours in the water until she eventually died. Drowned them. Which paved the way for all of the great torture they used in asylums later on. Asylums where, of course, women could be admitted with nothing more than two signatures from doctors and a man, their husband or father's permission. And men got rid of women for all sorts of reasons. Postnatal depression, general depression, having been victimised by sexual violence, having lost a child, reading. (laughs) Any way you wanted to get rid of a woman, you could just send her down to the local asylum and leave her there for years or until she died there, torturing her. Let's have some cats to sanitise the situation. (laughs) Women were committed to asylums until well into the 20th century and left there to die. Wartime! Men go to war to protect us, and now we suddenly need women. We need them in the war effort. We need them to go to work. We need them to get some sense of adventure, of life. We need them to support us, boys. Bring us home. There we go, soldiers without guns. Oh, war's over. Back home for keeps. So now we've given you a taste of freedom. Now we expect you just to go back to the kitchen because we want our jobs back. So here, we're going to give you a lot of ads that show you a probably tranquilized woman. (laughs) Just so happy. Oh, look, it's a mother cooking for her children. Kill me! (laughs) She loves her pink oven. Oh, fun for the entire family. Look what's mum and daughter doing up here. Oh, I just love watching my husband and my son or my father and my brother. I just love watching them not do anything around the house. It's so great. So the harder a wife works, the cuter she looks. She's so cute. You'll be happier with a hoover. All of these women were heavily medicated, by the way. It's a myth that somehow the 1950s were this golden age for marriage where women knew their place and they were happy because Betty Friedan wrote about it in The Feminine Mystique and she said that they did want to get married. There was something about going through the Depression and going through another world war where they were like, I just want a bit of peace. Suddenly there's this economic boom time. Everyone can afford to have home appliances. But they were empty inside because there's actually nothing exciting about being in the home all day long. And Betty Friedan chalked it up to when the world became more globalised, when jobs became more exciting, when the space age was here and men were suddenly going out into the world and making their way and becoming a part of it, women were expected just to stay back, welcoming them them home, like women would have done in the Greek tales, welcoming them back to the shore. And women were so miserable because what they wanted was life, just like men did, because they were humans. Keep it where she belongs. Oh, have some fun. Beat your wife tonight. At bowling? Oh, my God. It's just a joke, guys. I want to die. Why would you want to avoid marriage when this is the kind of japery that you find there? It's just so exciting and fun, isn't it? Oh, look, anti-femme comics, they've gone, they've gone with a science route, exploring brains, daddy issues. They love that one. Hate! Roller derby. Cats. 
red dye. The red hair dye that's soaked through the scalp. It says it right there on the picture. <laughs> All right, Jennifer Aniston. I mean, the society's just obsessed with putting babies in her, aren't they? Oh, she's just been pregnant so many times. <laughs> Brad, I still love Jen, but I can't leave the kids. Oh, she's so evil, isn't she? She's like a witch. And that's kind of it too. When you teach women to aspire to marriage. Oh, it's Angelina collecting some of her penises. <laughs> oh, that's Jennifer, angel of the house. Oh, there's no shade on Jennifer. These are roles that they've been put into. Because that's what we're meant to be doing. We're meant to be gazing up at our husbands adoringly while he looks at our tits. <laughs> Those are the two roles that we're meant to play. We physically provide for the man. We have to keep ourselves in shape keep ourselves nice for him, flatter him with our physicality and flatter not just him for him, but in front of all the other men who he's truly competing with. And they look at our boobs and we look up at them and go, I will devote myself to you for the rest of time. That's what they want. That's the future that the conservatives want. Doesn't sound as funny as the, that's the future the feminists want. But you know, fuck it. So, I'm going a little bit over time here, but let's go back to that quote that we started with from Montana, Moderata Fonte wrote in 1600. Also, they'd love for you to believe that feminism was just created in 1970, that before that, women didn't have thoughts of their own, but women have been thinking for a long time. You, if you just, I mean, they don't read women, so how would they know? But if they did read women, then they would know that women have been saying things for a really long time. Moderata Fonte said, men never tell the truth except by accident. <laughs> However you want to interpret that, one thing is clear. The reality is that men have claimed the right to... Cons- the reality that men have claimed the right to construct for themselves as a class of people, as the agents of history, is entirely self-serving. The truth that men and the patriarchy they serve want us to believe is not just that women have never done anything of importance, but that we have never yearned to feel anything more important than the glow of their adoration. In 1924, the Egyptian feminist Huda Sharawi said that women are, quote, bright stars whose light penetrates dark clouds. They rise in times of trouble when the wills of men are tried. In moments of danger, when women emerge by their side, men utter no protest. Yet women's great acts and endless sacrifices do not change men's views of women. Faced with contradiction, they prefer to raise women above the ordinary human plane instead of placing them on a level equal to their own. Men have singled out women of outstanding merit and put them on a pedestal to avoid recognising the capabilities of all women. The self-aggrandising scientists of the 18th and 19th centuries allowed that some women had exceptional qualities, but these women were rare, obviously, and they were all inherited by their fathers. The majority of women were inferior in almost every respect, and therefore in need of men to both serve and to oversee their decision-making. Defining marriage and maternal service as women's most natural role is a very clever way for men to hold women in two simultaneous positions, that of the lowly demonic witch, whose repudiation of her God-given role makes her a servant of Satan, for being a woman, she must be a servant to somebody, and that of the angel of the house, the woman who knows that her place is to serve at the foot of her master and therefore live on the pedestal of his admiration. How dare they? We've had some laughs today. I've tried to give you some humour. I could have stood up here and just made a lot of jokes about how ridiculous it is to make fun of cat ladies, but I feel like that's playing into it somehow. It's playing into the insults that they directed us, and it's not looking at why 
they direct them to us, what they want from us. We can get some good catharsis out of some pretty fucked up torture because it's funny, right? It's a joke. Women are a joke. It's so funny when we get mad, when we defend ourselves. Enjoy your cats, you fucking man-hater. You fucking feminist cunt. I'll stick a dick in that mouth to shut you up. What's the problem? Have a laugh. It's just a joke. Men love a joke. Got to laugh about the dark shit. Relieve some tension. Bring some levity to all that rape and violence and torture that we've inflicted against you for thousands of years. Laugh at it. Laugh at it. Come Come on, laugh at it. Why aren't you fucking laughing? I am fucking sick to death of men telling me what to do. Telling me to laugh at jokes about my dehumanization. Sitting on TV shows giggling with each other about all the different clever ways they can find to diminish women who refuse to be controlled by them but from whom they came. Telling us that this history doesn't exist. That the reality that we see is false. That we're looking at the statue wrong. Telling us that we need them to keep us in line because we clearly can't be trusted to do it by ourselves, us Eves who were formed out of Adam's bent rib, created by a patriarchal God, to live in subservience to him, whose original sin caused the challenge, caused the collapse of paradise, and for which we must now accept penance for eternity as weak underlings. Don't be too loud. Don't sleep around. Sit with your legs closed. Don't wear that. Don't be rude. Speak up. Pipe down. You sound like a fishmonger's wife. Careful with all those opinions. Learn how to cook. Learn how to clean. What you need is a good dick up you don't be a slut do know how to give a good blowjob if he picks on you it's only because he likes you don't be too needy don't drink too much don't be a prude don't walk down there don't go outside don't stay inside don't go to parties don't be a bore don't be fat don't be skinny don't wear makeup you look like a whore put some makeup on you look sick men like a girl who's low maintenance men hate girls who let themselves go men like a girl with meat on her bones men like a girl who takes care of herself men hate girls who are always on a diet men like a girl who acts like a lady you need to shave that you're a natural i'm not going in there until you fix it up have a baby. Why do you look like you've had a baby? Why do you feel like you've had a baby? It's like throwing a sausage down a hallway. Too many dicks will ruin a girl. I can only come if I put it in your ass. It's so hot when I'm hurting you. Don't be too intimidating. Don't be too smart. Don't be too funny. Don't be too serious. Don't be too ambitious. Don't want anything. Don't need anything. Don't take anything. You're not like other girls good. You're not like other girls bad. You're not that fucking special. You're not that fucking smart. You're not that fucking hot. You're not that fucking good. Who the fuck do you think you are? You'll never get a husband with that attitude. How have we arrived here in the heteronormative hellscape of marital aspiration. Logic would dictate that we all reject the male class entirely, refusing to hand over a single scrap more of the labor and time that's been stolen from us for thousands of years. But it's not the case. Now we not only willingly surrender ourselves to patriarchy's domestic demands, we also participate in the charade that says this is what we need to be happy. We've arrived at a point in time where the prospect of being a single woman living alone isn't seen as a logical survival mechanism, let alone seen as a progressive step forward for a culture that once denied women the right to own property for ourselves. Merely the terrifying consequence that awaits she who aspires to be seen as human. We've come so far, only to find ourselves right back where we started, pleading for mercy and hoping like hell they'll spare us the fullness of their wrath. Because that's what it comes down to. Who gets to be people and who has to be women? 
For thousands of years, patriarchy has denied women personhood, and it's proved such a successful act of violence that women, desperate to negotiate some scrap of respect, are still called to the endless labour of reassuring men that we aren't really people at all. We can be ciphers, mirrors, cheerleaders, maids, therapists, sex objects, mothers and champions, but what we can never be is women with agency, because that implies we are people, and only men can be people. We know that men fear women and have done so since time immemorial. We know that men's fear of women is a killer, both figuratively and literally. But how to make us fear ourselves? How to make us fear our own freedom to the degree that even seeing it embodied in other women is experienced as a kind of terrifying virus we might catch? How to keep making us do the work of the witch hunters centuries after the last of the flames have burned out? Think about those witch hunts for a moment. Paranoia about witches existed for well over 500 years, but the fever of the hunts was concentrated to 150 years of them. Three, maybe four generations of people. Four years ago, COVID fundamentally changed the way that human society operated. We're not past it yet, obviously, but we're no longer told to be wary of hugging people, spending time with, another, with one another, gathering in rooms. But imagine if we were. Imagine if for 150 years, people were told that hugging someone could kill them. How would society fundamentally change in that time? What would the inherited legacy be for our descendants 500 years later? And that's how we need to think of the witch hunts and what it led to, the demonization of women over a thousand years. For three, maybe four generations of people, 150 years of torture, betrayal of your friends, neighbors, family members, executions, and barbaric dissolution of ancient scientific knowledge held by women. Women were made the object of terror and suspicion. And in making women the object of terror and suspicion, women were made to feel terror and suspicion of each other. We joke that two women is a problem and three is a coven. But this was true of the witch hunts. Women who spent too much time together were seen as colluding together, dangerous, satanic. Women who supported themselves were suspicious. Women who used their inherited knowledge of herbs and medicine, what they called physic, to deliver medicine to the people were called sorceresses and accused of causing harm to others. The knowledge was destroyed. Women have been separated from each other by an inherited legacy of fear and self-preservation. Our invisible shock collars got a real working out during that time, and we can still feel them so tightly around our necks that many of us are too afraid to even voice out loud that we need the community of women to survive. <laughs> this is genuine emotion here now. I'm not putting it on. Women are our saviors. Our lovers, the ones who stand by us, who listen, the ones who we've been told are untrustworthy, jealous, competitive, our own worst enemies. Women were not each other's worst enemies when the church was ordering people to hunt us and kill us. We were not each other's worst enemies when we were being imprisoned in asylums by husbands, fathers and brothers determined to rid themselves of an inconvenient problem. We were not each other's worst enemies when the law written by white men decided that the only thing you can trust about women is that we lie. We can be enemies to women. That's the fucking truth. We can be racist. We can be classist. We can be sadistic. We can be brutal. But we aren't enemies because we are women. And this line that women are each other's own worst enemies carries within it the inherent belief that women are fundamentally evil, conniving, malicious, gossipy, snake-like by our very nature. If we are evil to others, it's because we are human. We've been told so many lies about who we are. 
And here's another one. We talk about gossip and think of it as scurrilous rumour, petty, frivolous, bitchy, the kinds of things that women love to do to take each other down. But in the Middle Ages, when women's friendships with each other, when our community with each other was being attacked and destroyed, the word gossip simply meant friend. They cannot keep attacking us so long as we are together. Patriarchy does its best work when it has men embracing solidarity and women fearing it. Every attack made on our very nature has been designed to zap those invisible shock collars around our necks, to keep us in line to a system that needs to keep us on our knees. Leima Gaboi, who is a single mother, a community builder, a fighter, and who helped to bring the end to the Liberian Civil War by mobilising the nation's women says there is a moment in everyone's life when we, we all have it, when you're pushed so far back against the wall that you have two options. Allow that wall to swallow you or fight back. We must not let the wall swallow us because women standing together, working together, we can be the wall. We can protect those who come after us, protect them from ever having to know what it felt like to be almost swallowed by one. We don't have to keep letting men set the terms of the game, gaslighting us into believing that life only has meaning for us if one of them invites us to experience it. We are full and whole human beings in our own right and no one else gets to determine that. Let them rage from the pulpit. Let them spit their fury over the internet. Let them melt in anger at the thought of losing control over the thing that they have never been able to completely tame. Cats or no cats, I would rather wake up every day knowing that I live in service to no one but myself. Let them call us witches, demons, miserable old hags, crones, rammy sluts, pitiful cat ladies, old maids, spinsters. These are just words they use to avoid calling us what we actually are, what we have always been, what we will always be, the thing that terrifies them the most. Free. (laughs) Thank you. Watch other talks from All About Women 2023 on Stream, the streaming platform from the Sydney Opera House. Register for free now and start watching at stream.sydneyoperahouse.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon with more ideas at the house.